Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to Beach Point. My name is Bill Stafiri. I'm the senior pastor here at Beach Point. And uh, as we have been uh, uh, starting this morning thinking about this, this unique way in which God is at work in our lives, this great God is at work in our lives, you got to hear a little bit about how God is at work in our Huntington Beach campus. Um, there's a lot of things been happening here on our Fountain Valley campus. We have uh, we've had a number of camps. We just finished our drama camp, had this great performance on Friday. We have uh, college students that are leaving today uh, for their retreat. It's been, we got, I think, four retreats that are still to happen still this summer. There's a lot of stuff happening in and around. But uh, one of the reasons why we're doing this theme of under construction is this campus is getting ready to go under construction. And on uh, September 18th, uh, that week is kind of the, the, the week where things are going to get going. And one of the ways you're going to see the construction and know that the construction process is is uh, uh, beginning and in full force is you're going to see the demolition of the modular building now i don't know how many of you know what the yeah yeah we should clap god bless the modular building it has been here a long time so this uh, portable building that's out there uh, was a temporary setup. Uh, it was supposed to be here, I think, for about a decade. I think it's been here about 25 years. Uh, so it's been a little, a little longer than we anticipated. So people have joked with us and said, you know, can we have a fundraiser? Can we uh, each like pay five bucks and take a sledgehammer to it? And others have said, what if we just all got in a line and we blew really hard? We're pretty sure it would just <laughs> fall on its own. Uh, but when the, you'll, you'll kind of see it, and when it goes down, you'll kind of feel it and know that uh, uh, the, the construction will all kind of be going uh, in place. And so uh, both with the, the modular and then the basketball area, that whole area starts getting ripped up, and, and uh, the demo process begins. But as that demo begins, what is going to come in its place is going to be something quite awesome. This multi-purpose room with storage, uh, 240 people can fit in there all at once, or we can break it into kind of hotel-style little uh, conference rooms and 60 people in each room. There will be expanded parking, a covered patio and meeting space, uh, uh, expanded bathrooms, a lot, of, a lot of really, really cool stuff that's going to get built in its place. But the only way that stuff can be built is if we first demo the old stuff, if we first rip up and tear down the old stuff. And, and this is a, a powerful metaphor for us in this whole series of under construction because what we know is this, is that if Jesus is going to build his life in ours, there's going to have to be some demo. There's going to have to be some tearing down of stuff so that he can build his life in ours. Our best self is out there, our best self that he wants to build. And if he is going to renovate us with his abundant life, uh, then we have to let him uh, begin with demolition. So here's our big idea today. And our big idea is kind of a, 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 a central idea that uh, you'll see, I think, through the whole text that what we're looking at today. But our big idea is this, that renovation requires demolition. Renovation requires demolition. What I want you to see today is how important the demolition process is in the life that God is trying to build in us. And we're going to see that in our hearts and in our lives that demolition, demolition is required if we want uh, the renovation. So our, our series of under construction is challenging us with this. And what we've been seeing is that we are under construction. You are always under construction. You are being constructed, as the Apostle Paul says, you are being formed 
we are all being formed by something or someone. And so we have to ask ourselves a question during this series. What or who is forming you? What is forming your life, your worldview, your desires, your actions? What is it that is forming you? We are all always being formed. And so uh, what what this series helps us uh, be reminded of is this great concept in the Bible that when we come to faith in Christ... It doesn't just end there or it doesn't happen there and start there and then it will take place again once we go to heaven. But in this in-between time, God is at work. He is constructing in our lives his life. He's forming in our lives his life so that we would learn uh, to take on kind of an outward conformity, that we would look more and more like Jesus, his character, his actions, his vision uh, towards things, his hope and feelings and habits, uh, all these things, but also that there's an inward desire. These inward desires of us are changing as well. Now, here's, here's what's important. This in-between time, We do not do these things. We aren't working, constructing our lives in such a way so that we will be saved. We do them because we're saved. We do it because we have experienced the grace of God. Salvation comes not by any works. It comes by faith in Jesus Christ. It comes by faith. But in that moment of faith, when we align our, our life with, with uh, the life of Jesus, when we say we are his, we, we commit our life to him, something dynamically happens. And as a result of experiencing that grace, God begins this work in our lives. And what we saw last week, this becomes a partnership. We begin to work together. And so one of the things to understand is that uh, understanding this grace we have received is a very important thing. What Brian and the team were leading you in those moments It's so valuable because as our minds and hearts get drawn to the greatness of who God is and what he's done for us, then that brings us to this point of wanting this desire to work uh, alongside of him for this construction process. Dallas Willard describes it really well, uh, this whole process really well. He says it this way. He says, grace is opposed to earning, not effort. Okay, He says this, that in fact, nothing inspires and enriches or enhances uh, effort like the experience of grace. Yet it is today necessary to assert boldly and and often that becoming Christ-like never occurs without intense and well-informed action on our part. You will not become like Christ by passively sitting and waiting for it to happen. You partners, we saw last week, that Philippians says that uh, we are to work out our salvation. Why? Because God is at work. You work, God works, we work, we're, we're, we're construction partners through this. But this does require us to understand from God what it is that he wants to work on in our lives and then uh, following him and obeying him and walking in those very things. So here's what I want to I want to encourage you to turn to Colossians chapter 3. There's Bibles in front of you if you need one. Page 1184. We're going to look this morning at uh, the first 11 verses and then next week we're going to hit uh, the last five verses after that. We're going to look at this this portion in two weeks. Uh, but what we want to see is that this week, we wanna, the first half of it is we want to see how, how demolition is a part of the renovation, renovation process. But next week, we'll see the, the, the amazing things that God wants to build in its place. And so these two things are going to work together. It's a quite dynamic chapter. And so let's begin uh, Colossians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. It says this. Uh, 
It says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on thing, things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now let's stop there for a second because there's a, an incredible first thing that we want to see. And here's the first thing, the first uh, fill-in if you want to write it down. Our first point is this, is that our new identity requires a life renovation. Our new identity requires a life renovation. Sometimes your identity takes a, a big shift. Uh, you go from being single to married. Uh, and, and those of you who went from single to being married, you stop your dating life, okay? Your, your new identity requires renovation. You do things differently. And in the same way, we're going to see that, that something has happened, that an identity change has happened as a result. Uh, renovation is, is critical to being who we are now. Now, notice that this focus on identity, he says this. He says, look, set your minds on these things. Okay, I want you to think about these things. I want you to consider these things. I want you to dwell on these things. I want your head to get around these things. And then he says this, set your hearts on these things, on these heavenly things that he's, he's going to talk about. So our minds get around it. We, we, we understand it rationally. Uh, we understand the reason behind what, what's going on. But it should grip us so much that your heart changes, your will, this desire in you that says, I cannot be the same anymore. My, my heart is gripped by this very thing. And notice what it is that he says has happened. He says this, that, that you have died and you've been raised. Now, one of the best ways to picture it, and he does this in chapter two, is he pictures this through baptism. Now, some of you have been baptized and some of you haven't. We're going to have a baptism uh, September 10th. If you haven't signed up to be baptized yet, uh, on the Connect card, you can write down, uh, check that off and let us know. But baptism is this incredible picture in the Christian church. It's, it, it is a, uh, a ritual we go through, a sacrament we go through, in which you, in essence, are telling a story. The, the first story you tell is the story of Jesus, who's, who you believe now, uh, has died, been buried, but has risen to new life. But the second story that you're telling, the reason why you are walking in this, is you are saying, my life has died and been buried with him. And now I have been raised with him. And the person I am now, I've raised to, li been, to live this new life with him. And so there's this way of, of communicating something has happened in me. I'm not the same person. I might look the same. I might still seem the same. But who I am before this moment is I am changing. Something about me has changed. And what you're going to see in me is a change of life. He says that we have died with Christ, that our old life is dead and buried. Uh, and it's important for you to kind of figure this out. So if you've come to faith in Christ, and, and even as you think about baptism, but even in faith, to say in faith you have died with Christ, uh, that your sin is dead with him. And it says, when it says that you've died with Christ, it means that when God sees you, he sees you free from guilt, from the guilt of sin. Uh, Romans says it this way. Uh, we were at camp and they were, they were stressing this idea that there is now in Christ no condemnation. There's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Your sins are no longer counted against you. You have died with him in this way. 
But notice he doesn't end there. He doesn't just say that you have died with Christ. He says that we are raised with Christ. In fact, he says, focus on the fact that you are with Christ. Well, where's Christ at? He's seated at the right hand. We're in Christ. He's seated at the right hand. So where does that put us if we're with him? He says that we are seated in the same way. So this is a powerful picture. So I want you to take a moment to try to get your head around it, get your heart around it. So think about this. What does it mean to be uh, raised? Christ is raised and seated at the right hand. Well, the image is uh, uh, the image of a, of a king sending out his son. And he sends out his son on this dangerous mission. And the son comes back victorious. And he gathers the kingdom together. And there before the entire kingdom, he takes his son who he delights in. Who, and he honors him. He honors his bravery and the nobleness of his mission. And he, he exhibits his love and his, his concern. And he takes his son and he brings him and he seats him at his right hand. There is no uh, place more prominent in the whole kingdom. And he places him to sit at his right hand before all the kingdom. Now notice what it says about us. It says that that's where Christ is seated. But if you are in Christ... That's where you are seated as well. Which means this, that that when God looks at you, what he sees in you is the same victorious spirit, all the victory of Christ, he sees that in you. All his merit, all his righteousness, he sees that in you. When he delights in his son, the way he delights in his son, he delights in you. Now, This is going to be hard for some of you, so here's the challenge. Try to get your head around that. God delights in you like he does his own son. Try to get your heart around that. God, you delight in me like you delight in your son? That can't be. But Paul says, no, but it is. He says, Set your minds on that. Set your heart on that. Because if you do, it will change the way that you do everything else from this moment on. In fact, notice verse 4. He says this. You will, you will in essence see this. That Christ is my life. He's not a part of my life. Nothing else has my identity anymore. Christ is my life. Your career might be good, it might be important, but there's no way you'll let your career be your identity. Because if you fail in your career, you'll you'll somehow feel like you are a failure. If my job is my life, then my value rises and falls on my performance. If a relationship is my life, then my my peace rises and falls based on, on, on this relationship. But if Christ is my life, then my value, my peace, is all dependent on how God sees me. And he says, he sees you this way. He delights in you like he delights in his son. This is why you could say, Christ is my life. There's nothing else that is going to identify my life other than him. Now, this is very, very radical. This is something that is challenging for us to get our heads and hearts around because it's almost like too good to be true. And it's so good, and, and I think in some ways it's so good, and he had to start with something so good because the next line is so hard. Notice what the next verse says, verse 5. It says, Put to death, therefore. 
So uh, the, the simple biblical rule, um, everyone teases me because I always say it. Every time I see it, you, if you want to know what therefore is, uh, you would figure out what therefore is therefore. So he says, put to death, therefore. What is he saying? Looking what we just saw, how good this is. Now do this. Put to death all that old stuff about who you were. All that stuff that messes you up and it destroys you. All that stuff that brings about the wrath of God. Notice what he says. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Okay, That's who you used to be. It's not who you are now. So here's what I need you to do. Put these things to death. Here's here's our second point. Demolition is not tame. Demolition is not tame. Put to death is not a gentle request. Why so violent? Why so violent? Because notice what he says. These are the things that are bringing about the wrath of God. These are things that are destructive. These are the things that would destroy you, that are destructive to the world. And, and because of these things, this is why the wrath of God is coming. In his most recent book, Goliath Must Fall, uh, Louis Giglio recounts the story of a woman. And, and it's a heartbreaking story. Uh, but he tells the story of a woman who was mauled to death by her pet tiger. Uh, now, when you hear that, your, your heart is confused. Because number one, you are, you're like, oh my goodness, this is just terrible. Oh my, who has a pet tiger? Okay, so you're, you're stuck because you're like, I, I'm, I'm really confused. Who would do such a, because you know by its very nature, a tiger is a, it, it is a, it's a, it's a killer. I mean, it, it's, 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 this is who it is. So who would try to tempt nature by making a pet out of one of nature's most natural born killers? He writes this about it. it just, he, he's trying to figure this out. And this is what he says first. He says, here's what I think happened. When the woman first met the tiger, it looked cute and cuddly. The furry little cub was small and playful, entertaining, endearing. I bet she held the cub tight. It purred with delight. A bond was formed. She gave her pet tiger cub a name, maybe Mushy or Boo Boo or Stripey or Elwood. She took it home. She gave it a warm space to sleep and a safe place to play. All was well, day after day after day after day, until Elwood grew. Then that playful pet morphed into what it truly was and showed its true colors. It wasn't a fuzzy cub anymore. It was a savage killer. And the tiger attacked, and the results were heartbreaking. And then he applies it to our lives. He says it this way. He says, it's not much different with our giants. The habits, the behaviors, the faulty beliefs, the same old broken ways we're accommodating in our lives. These pets started out as cute and cuddly babies. They didn't look like they'd do us any harm. They were comforting, reassuring. We formed bonds with these pets. We gave them a warm place to stay in our minds, in our hearts, in our behaviors. But these same pets have grown. They're slowly, they're showing their true colors. And they aren't pets anymore. 
They're savage killers, nine-foot-tall giants, and they're ripping into us, mauling us. We desperately want to rid ourselves of these giants. These things, these are things that are not to be tamed. They are not to be uh, 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 rationalized or, or, or put on a leash in any sort of way. Notice what he says. The command is put to death. These things. Uh, in Galatians 5, he says, crucify these things. He says, do whatever it takes to get rid of these things in your life. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, lying. Now maybe you're saying, well, 2,000 years, things have changed. Some of these things aren't so bad anymore. Like, do we, do we really need to be this harsh about these kinds of things? Let me give you two tests to decide. You decide for yourself. Test number one, you're going to move into one of two cities, okay? And you talk to your real estate agent about the two cities. And city number one, you ask your agent, tell me a little bit about the city. And your agent responds this way. Well, this city is known for... Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, and lying. Okay, tell me about city number two. Now do this. Cheat with me a little. Look at verse 12. This is, we'll see next week what he wants to grow in our lives. This city is known for compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Which of those two cities do you want to move into? Okay, don't answer. Test number two. Let's fast forward 30, 40 years. It's your funeral. We're here. Hopefully I'm not. We're doing your memorial service. You get to peek at, your, at the eulogies being given about you. Eulogy meaning a good word. Here are the words, the good words people are saying about you. Would you prefer, number one, them saying this, she was known for her sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, and lying. Or she was known for uh, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Don't answer. Set your minds on this. Set your hearts on this. Now, you're looking at this and going, I, I've tried to kill these things. And if I could kill them with my own strength, I would have I done it. I, can't, I, don't know, I don't know how to do this. You know, Jesus talked about this kind of stuff too. He said, he said it this way. He says, if your right hand causes you to, to stumble, cut it off. If your eye, right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Now, he's using hyperbole. He's not being literal. He's using exaggeration to make a point. And his point is, if these things cause you to struggle, stumble, get rid of them. Whatever it is that causes you to sin, get rid of it. Do whatever it takes. You're thinking, man, I, I want to. How? How do I do this? Now, one of the ways he says to do this was what? Set your mind, set your heart on things above the good things, the great things that God is in this with you. You're in Christ. He will not, he's going to do it with you. You're construction partners. When we say, one of the things that we say here is sometimes there are hurts, there are habits, 
there are hangups that keep us from running after Jesus the way he wants us to, from becoming the authentic followers of Jesus Christ that we are trying to become. So one of the things that we would say this is we don't want you to have to do that alone. We have a tremendous ministry. Every Monday night, 7 p.m., it's called Celebrate Recovery. And, and there you will meet remarkable people. People absolutely committed to together, to uh, working through hurts, habits, hangups, things that are slowing them down from becoming all that Jesus wants them to be. You don't have to do it alone. Renovation means doing hard things. It means removing the things that impede life and growth. Demolition is required. It is rarely tame. But here's why we do it. Here's the last thing I want you to see is this, that we get rid of the old so that we can enjoy the new. Paul is saying those things no longer have to, to define you or control you. Put these things to death. Don't allow these things to be who you are to, to, to identify you any longer. He says, we are being renewed. Notice what he says. Verse 8, he says, um, you must rid yourselves also of such things as these anger, rage, malice, slander, Filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off the old self and its practices. There again, what he's saying is, that's not you. That's not you anymore. You don't have to be this way. You've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. And then notice what he says about our identity. There's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. Our new identity is we are in Christ. He is in us. He is with us. And we just need to give ourselves totally to him and to his life and let him build into us all that he wants us to be. Now, it takes some time to discover what it means to belong to the creator, to be renewed by him. But this formation process, if you'll let this process happen, if you, if you will choose to be under construction, what you will choose to do is truly become human. You will learn to truly flourish, truly thrive as Jesus designs it for you. So as you partner with him in this process, there will be demolition, there will be renovation. A whole new life is coming. A beautiful, wonderful, breathtaking life awaits you. Now, one of the pictures of this, and I know a lot of you have seen this, um, and so you'll, your head's going to go there. You've probably seen this story, but I think it is absolutely fascinating story. In fact, it, it, it even has fascinated those who kind of uh, initiated this. But some of you know in 1995, uh, at Yellowstone National Park, they reintroduced the gray wolf. So I, I think it was like they released like seven wolves into uh, this entire uh, uh, place. Now, much had happened over the time that uh, these wolves were gone. Much of the landscape had, had uh, uh, changed as a result of this. But wolves, by their very nature, are predators. They kill certain species of animals. And as a result, they instinctively or indirectly give life to others. So when they reintroduced these wolves into the ecological equation, it changed radically the behavior patterns of other wildlife. So, for example, the wolves began to kill coyotes. As a result, 
rabbits, mice began to increase. As a result, there were more hawks, there were more weasels, there were more foxes, there were more badgers. Now, when the wolves were gone, there were no apex predators. Deer overpopulated the park. They had overgrazed parts of Yellowstone. So what had happened as the deer began to be hunted, new traffic patterns uh, developed, new flora and fauna began to regenerate, berries uh, and shrubs caused a spike in the bear population. And in six years, all it took was six years, the trees in those overgrazed parts of the park had quintupled in height. Bear valleys were reforested with aspen, willow, and cottonwood trees. And as soon as that happened, songbirds started nesting in the trees. Then the beavers came. Beavers started chewing down the trees. The beavers are the the ecosystem's engineers. And they began to build dams and new habitats as a result. Otters, muskrats, ducks, as well as fish, reptiles, and amphibians. Then there was one last ripple effect. The wolves even changed the behavior of rivers. Yes, wolves can do that. Here's how. Because of all these other things, what had happened was this, that the, because there was less soil erosion from all of the things that were growing, channels narrowed, pools formed, and a regenerated forest stabilized the riverbanks. It's quite spectacular. If you get a chance to watch the video, it, it really is like, you're kind of like, whoa, that is crazy that seven wolves could have such a dynamic effect. So what's my point? My point is this, we need wolves released on our hearts, don't we? We need, we need to, in some way, allow the, the same kind of thing to happen. Uh, when you take the wolf out of the equation, the, the stuff, the, the, the ramifications is what we see in these descriptions. All this other stuff grows uncontrolled. And the, the life, uh, that, that the breathtaking life, that awaits us is held back. So what if, what if this, what if we didn't like uh, Yosemite release actual gray wolves into our lives, but what if you released Jesus into your heart in the same way? So Jesus is described in Revelation 5 as the lion of Judah, uh, the lion who is triumphed. And what if you, you, your prayer began to be something like this, that you began to pray that, that God would release the lion in your heart. Now you're thinking, wait a second, I am awfully confused. You're, there's a lot of stories about animals devouring things to, here today. You started by saying that don't have a pet tiger because it will maul you to death. And now you're saying release a, a, a lion in my heart. I am really confused. Think about it though for a second. If you've ever read the book, uh, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, you get kind of a picture of this. So Jesus is described in this book as Aslan, uh, the great lion. And so there's this moment where the kids are, are sitting with uh, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And, and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are trying to explain who Aslan is. And, and this is a dialogue that takes place. Uh, they say this to the kids. They say, Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good, 
He is the king, I tell you. Now, I realize the invitation to release a lion in your heart is not safe. But it is good. And if the best version of you simply needs the demolition of of the destructive things that are no longer you anyway, that don't have to have power over your life anymore anyway, isn't it right for us to boldly pray? If we've set our minds on how great his love is for us, if we've set our hearts, you delight in me. You delight in me like you do your son then can't we have the courage to begin praying this prayer? Here's our prayer this week. Lord, what do we need to start tearing down? What do we need to start tearing down? What if we began to pray this way this week and ask, what do you want to start tearing down? What do we need to kill? Now, Ken said last week, each week we're going to practice a discipline, a spiritual discipline, something that will kind of kind of work us towards this very thing happening. Last week, it was on uh, reading scripture. And so we showed you on the back of the note sheet, there's like three uh, devotional pieces. And you can each, uh, three different days, you can read a scripture, you can think through some questions. So here's our spiritual practice this week. Fasting. Some of you are thinking, can we please go back to Bible reading? Like that, that sounds way better than fasting. What do I mean by fasting? It means to voluntarily uh, abstain for food for a spiritual purpose. Now, many of you have fasted for medical purposes. You're getting blood drawn or you're going into surgery or something like that. And they tell you you can't eat between here and here. God made you to eat. You need food. So when you don't eat, you feel hungry and it doesn't feel good. Your body wants food. So fasting was something that God actually is the one who instituted this practice. This wasn't like some monk, you know, a thousand years ago. This is something that God would invite his people to, to fast for a spiritual purpose, to pray or to grieve or to uh, uh, reflect in some way about the bigger things that he was trying to do. It drew their attention into him. There was always a purpose. There always must be a purpose. In fact, Jesus said it this way to his disciples. He said, now when you fast, not if you fast, when you fast, and he assumed that we would fast as part of a spiritual practice of knowing him more. So here's what you do. You fast for a purpose. So what you don't do, here's not the purpose. You don't fast to say this, oh God, I've gone without food for two hours and I hope it just demonstrates to you, I really love you. Like I am so hungry, but I'm doing this Because I want you to know how much I love you. Okay, that's not the purpose. Okay, we fast. Here's what's going to happen. As you fast, you're going to get hungry. And one of two things is going to happen. You're going to make it all about you or you can make it about God. Here's how you make it about you. I've only got four more hours. I've only got three more hours. I've only got two hours and 44 minutes. And you're kind of thinking, but God, I hope you just see. I have willpower. I'm going to make it to the finish line. And it's to demonstrate that you're important to me. That, in essence, really is more about you. You're going to feel hungry. In those pains, in those hunger pains, here's what you do. Here's how you turn it to him. Lord, I'm hungry. (laughs) And this hunger pain reminds me that you're up to something in my life this week. And so help me see what it is that you're trying to tear down. Help me... I can't do it without you. 
So this hunger pains to remind me that if I don't, if I don't lean into you, we're not going to get through this thing. It's going to take me a long time to smother this thing in my life. And turn those hunger pains. Now, here's what my suggestion would be this. Skip a lunch. Okay? Don't try to like, okay, for the next seven days, I'm not going to. Okay, don't just skip a lunch. Just try that. Okay? And if you have dietary restrictions or health concerns, then just you're okay. Don't do it. Or you can come talk to me, Pastor Matt, and we'll show you some other way you can fast from something else. But just during those pains, turn it to, to focus prayer to say, what is it that you're doing? What is it that you're doing? What do you want to tear down in my life? Lord, how can I, I can't do it apart from your strength. And so our prayer is this, Lord, what do we need to start tearing down? And so let's do this. The band's going to come and lead us in these final songs as we close. I, I just want to, I want you to get a glimpse of vision for a second. If, if our lives could, imagine our lives being like that Yosemite National Park, that if we let this, this demolition process into our hearts, that God could rebuild, reform all these beautiful things as they're intended to be, as the creator intended it to be. How exciting is it going to be for your life? Or maybe more importantly, for a lot of you, you need to think of it this way. How important is it going to be for those people you love the most? How blessed will they be? How blessed will this city be? by us being the kind of people who have been reformed in this way. I, I love this quote from Christine Kane this week. She said this, don't forget to remember to live out what you believe so others will believe what you live. Let's let God change who we are. Let's pray together for this very thing. Lord, we just take these last moments of this service to just uh, set our minds, set our hearts on our devotion to you. Help us be mindful. What is it that you want to start tearing down? But take our focus not on how much work that's going to require, but on, on your greatness, as Brian said earlier. These things have, they have no shot against you. They have no shot against you. So in these final moments, uh, Lord, just in these next moments, just take a moment, just in these next 30 seconds, just think about, that question, Lord, what do we need to start tearing down? Don't feel intimidated by what he shows. It has no shot against the greatness of our God. Lord, what do we need to start tearing down?